Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is almost Thanksgiving. It is almost one of my least favorite days of the year. Not Thanksgiving, but Black Friday. I don't know. Black Friday is just one of those days that I try to avoid markets and everything, basically. And this year I'm off. There is some football, so I guess that'll be good. By the way, if my voice sounds a little different, it's because my microphone is on life support. So far, so good. But there's a few pieces that are off on it. So I've ordered another one again, and we're just waiting on that. So anyways, though, it is November 20th. We are about 66 67% through the month of November. And I, I was talking to a coworker today. I don't know if I'm particularly ready for the idea of winter, the idea of Christmas. Side note, PSA. I was in Rayleigh's today. Can you wait on the Christmas music at least until after Thanksgiving? I mean, I am not ready to hear Mariah Carey nonstop, okay? I am just not. And she's already on the speakers. They're putting her on blast, and it is, it's getting kind of exhausting. So, yeah, as you guys can already tell, I'm in a bit of a ranty mood today. Ranty is good sometimes. I don't even know if that's a word, but it's going to be a word for today. So, anyways, everything aside, Javier Millet has... Well, he's probably one of the first libertarian leaders in the world. He was elected in a runoff to be the new president of Argentina. I want to talk about him. He's a pretty odd dude. He looks like he has a wig. He doesn't. He was in a Rolling Stones cover band, soccer player, anarcho-capitalist, like actually an anarcho-capitalist, doesn't believe in climate change, wants to get rid of the central bank in Argentina, wants to put Argentina on the U.S. dollar, doesn't really have any friends, he, he's been single, he cloned his dogs, all of that and more coming up. Plus, I also want to talk about Sam Altman and OpenAI, and I want to talk about basically the closed-door chaos of OpenAI. <laughs> Get it? Get it? Because it's OpenAI? <laughs> Anyways, first and foremost, though, I do want to give a shout-out to a movie I saw, what, on, I guess it was on Saturday. It is called The Holdovers. Alexander Payne's new movie. Alexander Payne, you know, The Descendants, Sideways, Election, Downsizing. There's others I just can't... Oh, uh, About Schmidt, Nebraska. Really great, really great director. Sideways, my top 10 favorite movies of all time. It does such a good job looking at the flawed, horrible character of two lost guys in like in their past midlife, right? And just looking at how their self-destructiveness is kind of part of the human experience in a lot of ways. So anyways, I think Alexander Payne is back to form in The Holdovers. It's set in 1971 in New England at a boys' boarding school for kind of rich, mainly white men during the Vietnam War. And Paul Giamatti is back. He plays a pretty cranky asshole of a teacher, and he watches over the boarding school during the holidays when most of the kids go home you know, to celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever it may be. And he stays and runs the school with the boys that basically aren't wanted at home or can't go home. And it's just a really interesting look, I think, into basically these elite wealthy boys growing up in a bubble while the Vietnam War is raging in the background. And it also just looks at kind of how existence is complicated and you don't really understand others. It's very dialogue-driven, very character-driven, a lot of interesting reflections and dialogues 
from Paul Giamatti's character who kind of absorbs the basically idea that life isn't fair and there's some people that feel like they've just never had a fair chance in life. And I, I don't know, I think it's a really interesting movie that made me think about like, what does it mean to live lucky? What does it mean to not live lucky? Are we all just blessed to, you know, live our existence the way we perceive it? Or are there external factors? And also, it was just interesting to see how kind of the privileged were able to have their own problems, even when mainly young minorities and lower income Americans were being shipped off to Vietnam. So long story short, go see The Holdovers. It's funny. It's deep. It's a great drama, great dialogue. I hope that it gets some Oscar looks. I think it will as of now because a lot of people are saying it's one of their favorite movies so far they've seen. Go see it. It's a good mix of just high school coming of age mixed with war, mixed with drama, mixed with growth. Really good. I'll stop ranting about though and we will move on. So I want to talk about Argentina for a little bit. So I've mentioned this before, but there is a guy named Javier Millet, Millet, sorry, and he's an Argentinian economist, 53 years old, and as the Associated Press writes here in quotes, he has rocked Argentina's political establishment and inserted himself into what has long been effectively a two-party system by amassing a groundwell of support. And what I mean here is that <laughs> people thought he was a long shot about a couple months ago. But after the runoff, he secured like 55% of the vote, according to the numbers I've seen. And he is now the president of South America's second largest economy. He, he, he is what I would call a radical anarcho-capitalist, uh, anarcho-libertarian Someone on the very unique fringes of the right, someone who dances uniquely in that Tucker Carlson, Trump, Elon Musk, techno bro, libertarian core. And he has some pretty, I would say, drastic, dramatic prescriptions to deal with soaring inflation, political corruption division. Obviously, Argentina is having just serious debt crises, serious struggles with the IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund. And none of this is new, but Argentina's economy has been in just chaotic cycles for decades now. And, you know, he wants to also basically fight any form of collectivism. He says he would never work with the left or work with socialists in society. He much like Republicans in the United States, pretty much calls anything on the left socialist. He misuses the term. He clearly doesn't understand the term. But he is fascinating. I, I really think he's fascinating. And I guess we'll start with the fun stuff because I wrote this down when I was having dinner earlier. I wrote, this guy seems funny and entertaining and charismatic, and I would love to have a beer and a cigar with him and just hear him rant. But beneath all of that, he actually seems like quite a radical, dangerous figure. And I think because he seems like such a charismatic clown, for lack of better words, people are kind of ignoring that, yeah, this guy could be entertaining for the next years, but he could also be very bad for the world and bad for Argentina. So anyways, we'll start with the fun stuff. He, so like I said, he was an economist. He also... Before he, I guess, entered the public spotlight, 
He was the chief chief economist, sorry, at Corporación América, which is one of Argentina's largest business conglomerates, and it runs most of the country's airports. He worked there until 2021. Then he became a lawmaker in Argentinian politics, and since then he's kind of become sort of a libertarian populist, doing a lot of interviews, rallying people around him. Kind of a fascinating figure, but the reason why I found him interesting is because oh, it was a couple weeks ago. I read a long article on him and then just went through his Wikipedia. And it was almost like every paragraph of his Wikipedia was more fascinating than the last. For example, he was in a Rolling Stones tribute band. And by the way, he looks like a 60s or 70s Rolling Stones cover band artist who's just gotten older, but his hair still stays the same. Like he looks like a washed up rock star. Like... I was thinking about this, and I've been trying to find the perfect comparison, but he kind of looks like an older version of Tucker Carlson if he had a wig and also some of Trump's vibes, like physical appearance vibes as well. And anyway, so yeah, he was in a Rolling Stones tribute band as a kid. He was a goalkeeper, a pretty good goalkeeper in the Carcacita Soccer Club. I don't know what the hell that is, but he decided to put aside uh, football, soccer, whatever you want to call it during the hyperinflation period of the late 1980s, and then he started studying economics and became quite a, you know, quite a radical libertarian economist, which I think in some ways I can agree with some of the things he says, but also we'll get into the other stuff in a bit. But he he doesn't always talk about politics when he does these interviews. He's quite an open book. People know a lot about him. And during some of his interviews, he's delved into his personal life and he was actually an expert in group sex. And I guess he even helped run clinics back in the day of this, but he also has been openly discussing how he participated in group sex and gave tips. Now, interestingly, he does not have a serious romantic partner. He, he also said he has no friends. And, and of course, nothing against that. You know, it's relationships are tough. Living and just, you know, connecting with people can sometimes be tough, but I don't know. It, it is interesting that the guy is, you know, touted his repeated group sex tactics and antics, and, you know, he's he also doesn't have any friends. Like, I don't know if this is the most stable genius you want running your country, I guess would be my point. Now, the other fun thing about him is I was watching an interview. I'm not going to play any of the interviews because they're all in Spanish and I understand it, but I just I, looking at my podcast numbers and the stats online, most of my listeners are not from Spanish-speaking countries, so I will just talk about it. But there's a funny interview. It's, not, it's, it's on an Argentinian night show, and they're talking about politics, but one of his dogs comes up on the screen behind him, and you notice he just gets sidetracked and gets almost like teary-eyed, and he's like, oh, it's blah, blah, blah. It's my dog, Conan. That's right. And he literally just gets sidetracked and starts talking about his dog. And so I looked into that deeper. And apparently he had a deep connection with his English Mastiff, Conan, who died. Dogs die, unfortunately. It's a way of life, usually before us. And he went a little bit further than most people I know. He now has at least four. I've, I've heard people say maybe five. He's had four to five dogs that were cloned using Conan, the Mastiff that died's DNA. And all of them are named after economists he likes. So literally the guy has four plus dogs, all that are clones of his original dog, and they're pretty much his life. So that's nice. That's, that's, that's I don't even know if nice is the right word, but it's something. 
And anyways, so <laughs> he's a character and he's really good at just seeming eccentric. Like he does a lot of videos where he's just slashing government. Like he pretty much like there, there's one video I saw where he's on a boat. I think he's in the Amazon or maybe near Guazu Falls or something like that. And basically he's on the boat reading a list of the different departments in government. And he's just like, adios, coom. And he cuts that one. And there's other times when he's brought in a chainsaw to government policies. Like this is just a guy who is optics and people like it. And to be fair, Argentina is one of those countries that has just gone back and forth from like corrupt establishment, right? To corrupt establishment left for quite some time. It is always in a financial crisis. So I think a lot of people are just sick of it. And they're like, hey, this guy seems funny. He wants to do something drastic, something different. Why the hell not? And so that's where we're at. Now, all of this aside, he, uh, <laughs> he basically at the heart of his economic plan is replacing the peso, the Argentinian peso, with the U.S. dollar. He has repeatedly basically said this is the only way to get rid of inflation, which, by the way, I mean, inflation is bad in Argentina. It's about 140%, according to recent numbers. And basically, he wants to prevent politicians from continuing to print money, which, honestly, I don't completely disagree with. I think... It might be misguided, though, because yes, during the pandemic, we have seen inflation around the world. I think some people liked, at least in the United States, to blame it on the economic stimulus, the PPP, Trump stimulus checks, Biden stimulus checks. I think maybe some inflation was from that, but you also have to add in basically just the supply chain crunch, wars, <laughs> gas prices, the fact that people were like housing went up because people were buying up second homes or moving or going out, you know, it's just everything changed. And I don't know if turning to the US dollar and preventing politicians from spending money on government programs is really the proper fixture. Also, he plans to extinguish the central bank, which is kind of a libertarian dream. And I'm sure there are some libertarians that are get, you know, going to get hot and heavy about that. I recommend reading some of the Federalist Papers, especially Alexander Hamilton ones, that talk about why you need a central bank, a Federal Reserve. I am more on the side that you do need it because it creates credibility inside of a country. That's a whole other conversation for a different day. But yeah, he wants to extinguish the central bank, cut like half of government ministries, including health and education, ones that I usually support keeping open. And he also wants to loosen the country's labor laws. And he basically just wants government to be a watchdog. Look, Argentina's seen corruption after corruption, scandal after scandal. I don't know if completely getting rid of oversight and regulation is how you fix that. But again, this guy is like the most just like raw version of a tech bro, anarcho-libertarian, anarcho-capitalist come to life. And so, of course, he wants to do this stuff. And now, <laughs> I guess where I always get confused. So I, I, I was telling a buddy a little bit ago, I like the Reason magazine libertarians, like the ones that actually stand by principle of free speech social liberalism and fiscal conservatism, a smaller state, 
also applies to social issues. And I am confused because a lot of these so-called libertarians are really authoritarian on social issues. And Malie, basically another guy who's exactly like this. He opposes abortion, wants to restrict it. Look, I don't really care if he personally doesn't like abortion, but a true libertarian would say you leave it up to the individual. He opposes any type of equity policies, which depending what they are, I might agree, I might disagree. He hasn't really elaborated too far on that yet, sorry. And Argentina has legalized abortion. He wants to obviously repeal that, but he does want to do so using a plebiscite so at least there would be a vote i don't think the vote would pass to be completely honest so hopefully he would honor that but my my also big thing is that he also rejects the notion that humans have a role in climate change in causing climate change i know a lot of libertarians that do think humans caused a role in climate change so it's not mutually exclusive it's really not but that's where i come down having some issues with this guy he also has, like I said earlier, talked about how he has no hopes or plans or intentions of working with the left. He wants to rid out collectivism and socialism in classes and in schools. And this is the part where he feels a little bit like Peter Thiel or Elon Musk and a little bit like Tucker Carlson or I guess you could say even like a Ron DeSantis where he is so anti-left that he actually wants to use the state to go against what he calls collectivism and leftism and all that type of bullshit. And again, this guy to me seems more like, I think, I think anarcho-capitalist is a much better word for him than a libertarian because he seems like a guy who just believes in unbridled capitalism, no checks on it. And you guys know my opinion. I'm a capitalist. I think people should prosper. There should be no limits on wealth and economic growth. But well, okay, <laughs> let me take that back. I don't think you should disincentivize people from growing and being successful, but I do think you need regulation so so that, you know, you have a society that doesn't just look at profits and not anything else. And it seems like seems like Javier Millet is more on the side of just like let's fucking go. <laughs> so, anyways, this is going to be interesting. I think it was Kyle Kolinsky who said you know, at least this is going to be a pretty entertaining couple years. Yeah, probably. But when you, when you think about environment, economy, women's rights, abortion rights, not great. I also, I mean, the idea of cloning your dog, I don't even, I don't even know how I feel about that. Like, in all honesty, I just don't even know what I think about that. But I guess it's just a moral conundrum. It is ethically vague. <laughs> the last thing I'll also say is, of course, this guy is a big fan of Donald Trump. He has personally said Donald Trump is one of the best presidents out there. So I don't see this guy as the... Well, Trump hasn't said much about him. And I don't see this guy as Trump's typical ally. Millet doesn't give me strongman vibes like Putin or Orban. That's, that's not my same thing with Millet. He seems more like just... Uh, kind of complicated, quirky libertarian who could inadvertently or avertently kind of bring down the Argentinian economy. But I don't get like Victor Orban, like erode democracy and seize the courts. I could be wrong and I could be eating crow soon. But for now, 
It just doesn't seem to be the case. So we'll have to keep following this. I am very fascinated by this guy. Like I said, I think he's going to be a horrible president, but good God, I would, I would still love to just, you know, sit down, maybe meet him halfway. We could meet in like, I don't know, Brazil or, or even Mexico, have some margaritas, smoke a cigar and just talk. Cause I bet this guy is fascinating. That's all I have to say. So anyways, moving on, um, I want to talk about open AI and I want to talk about Sam Altman specifically. Uh, disclaimer, I am no expert on AI, so don't get mad at me for getting that side of it wrong, but I am more interested in kind of the socio-political and socio-economic dynamics that are unfolding here and kind of the larger moral question around whether this technology should be used just as more of a non-profit and is something to better humans or if profits should also be maximized. And Sam Altman obviously removed from OpenAI. I think it was on Friday. I woke up on Saturday and saw it. And I think the big debate going on inside of OpenAI is whether it should be about profit maximization or if it should be about being more of a service to humanity. And this almost seems like kind of a, a warring factions a, 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 sorry, a group of warring factions inside of OpenAI, kind of a Game of Thrones type of scenario. And I, I guess before I get into the different dynamics that have made this happen, I want to start with just kind of the spring of events that have happened over the weekend. So Friday, The Atlantic writes, in a blog post, the company said that Altman, in quotes here, was not consistently candid in his communications with the board. Greg Brockman, the president of OpenAI, who along with Altman, had encouraged the rapid commercialization of the company's technology, quit in solidarity. Mira Marathi, formerly the chief technology officer of the company, was named interim CEO. We've seen people dropping like flies. Then, over the weekend by Sunday night, OpenAI had rejected Altman's bid to return to the company. And Microsoft, which I think has like 49% of the funding towards OpenAI, had actually hired Altman to lead their AI research lab. And then you have Emmett Shear, former CEO of Twitch. He stepped into the role, sorry, the top role at OpenAI on an interim basis, replacing Marathi. Then today, <laughs> apparently like 700 of OpenAI's, about 800 employees signed a letter saying that they may leave the company and join Altman at Microsoft if he and Brockman are not reinstated at OpenAI. Now, so we are looking at basically a pretty, pretty huge moment. We're looking at probably somewhat of an inflection point for AI because, I, I, well, actually what I would say is it's probably not a good moment for AI either way. It could be, but I don't think it's going to be. And what's, what I think has happened here is that OpenAI was not meant to be part of the Silicon Valley tech industry. It was supposed to not be a company that was always pursuing scale. It was not going to pursue that create first, ask questions later approach to pretty much everything else we've seen, including like Facebook. The Atlantic writes, um, in quotes here, it was founded in 2015 as a nonprofit dedicated to the creation of artificial generation intelligence, or AGI. The goal, the article continues, should benefit humanity as a whole. 
And, I mean, this will not surprise any of you, but that's a pretty hard model to keep up when it seems like everything is pretty much profit-driven. And as I mentioned earlier, Microsoft, obviously a huge company, it was a major investor in OpenAI. So I would argue that it's kind of hard to be, uh, you know, a nonprofit dedicated to kind of the benefit of humanity when you have private actors involved. And also you have some people in OpenAI that really want, want just a, you know, beneficial, ubiquitous technology and others that just want to keep growing it to scale. And of course, this model didn't last. I was reading that I think it was 20, I don't have it in front of me, it was 2019, 2020, OpenAI launched a subsidiary with a capped profit model that could at least raise money, attract top talent, and this inevitably led it to building commercial products, I think like ChatGBT. And the nonprofit board had control still. But of course, I mean, it's a tough one because you do need to bring in money. You do need to make profits. You need just to attract top talent, which leads to more innovation and stuff like that, of course. But basically... It seems like, from my understanding, over the last couple years, there was a power struggle of some forms between the Silicon Valley techno-optimist people that, you know, liked rapid commercialization, wanted to make profits, wanted to turn this into the next big thing and pad their pocketbooks, pad their bank accounts. Then you also had some of the OGs in OpenAI that had fears that AI could be an existential risk to humanity and must be controlled with extreme caution. And it seems like, from my understanding, ChatGPT, which it's almost been about a year since it came out, you know, in its first early infancy, it seems like ChatGPT is what sent OpenAI into chaos. And I am not going to go out and argue either way on ChatGPT right now. I think it has a lot of good applications, and I also have my questions about it. But, you know, it supercharged kind of the movement among some in the company to create products for profit, right? And they also saw the company do much better than expected, I think, with ChatGPT. From my understanding is that OpenAI had a competitor at an organization company called Anthropic, and they were developing a chatbot of their own. And Charlie Warzel has a good piece in The Atlantic that talks about how the rivalry between Anthropic and OpenAI was quite personal because Anthropic had formed a faction of employees that left OpenAI in 2020. And so you kind of see in somewhat an arms race to create this technology. And basically, <laughs> it seems like ChatGBT, a lot of employees at OpenAI were betting on how many people would actually use it at first. And a lot of people didn't think it was going to take off. And then it kind of did. And it, it seemed like the incentive to beat out Anthropic was one of the reasons why they sped this up and got it out there. And Charlie Warzel also writes here in quotes, Safety teams within the company push to slow things down. These teams work to refine ChatGBT to refuse certain types of abusive requests and to respond to other, sorry, to other queries with more appropriate answers. And from my understanding, from the research interviews I've seen, is that you had safety teams wanting to slow things down 
but you also had the product side, the development side, the commercial side, wanting to build on the momentum and, you know, grow. And they kept hiring more employees to aggressively grow. And this gets us to different iterations of chat GPT, such as GPT-4, which from reports, and again, Charlie Warzel, who writes with The Atlantic, he is really renowned in kind of the social media tech Silicon Valley world, and he puts out a lot of good pieces. And he talks about how a lot of the alignment teams were really frustrated. And I, I think what you see here is a lot of people on the more utilitarian, nonprofit, better for humanity side were worried about upstream challenges, mainly things like preventing these chat GBT algorithms from, you know, spewing toxic speech or lies or hallucinating, which kind of means that it would present misinformation as fact. And there are examples of this happening. And it just seems like this got worse. And I've seen conflicting reports on Altman himself. Some think that he was really on the side of growing this and was not really focusing on the security or privacy concerns, was more focused on growth, like he was meeting with world leaders, working on creating other smaller applications for it. But then other people say that he had the idea that we needed to regulate it and control it, and he did have kind of an ethical and moral compass to dealing with this. And it is kind of vague with how he was let go because it seems like he had a lot of leverage in the company. He could have left to start his own thing again. That would have made a lot of sense. But as Charlie Warzel writes in a different blog, he says, the fact that it was announced in this cryptic blog post accusing him of not being candid was wild. Warzel continues in quotes here. It was one of the most shocking tech stories of the past couple of years. And apparently, Sam Altman, I was reading another article from a few years back. Apparently, he sent out an email back in 2018 or 2019, sorry, acknowledging that there were different tribes and there was breakdowns inside of the company. And Part of me wonders if he was kind of this sacrificial lamb because he is a smart, driven guy that had a lot of political and social clout. He was becoming somewhat of a celebrity. He had a lot of clout with world leaders. I wonder if they wanted to get rid of him because they didn't want the company to be too powerful. I would not be surprised with that because it seemed like OpenAI was kind of dancing between being a nonprofit that was looking at just shared information and betterment for society, and also, you know, getting closer to big tech. And there's always going to be a power struggle, I think, in these organizations. But it's just interesting how this unstable dynamic led to one of the guys probably most responsible for its success leaving. And I think the bigger question here, too, is like, what happens next when the guy who is kind of responsible for its growth is gone and now most of the company was on his side. And, and, and this talks to me a lot about the dynamics of these organizations. Like, like, when did they stop growing? And of course, I think a lot of things are going to change even by the time this comes out. This is a very fluid <laughs> event right now. 
But I, I do think there's something kind of ironic here is that Altman was one of the founders. He was highly involved in this. Clearly, he does believe that this organization is meant to be something bigger for humanity. And now that he's gone, he was hired by Microsoft, which is a private company with a lot of influence and clout in, in the world economy and in these fields. And what worries me here, and I was talking to a buddy about this involving Elon Musk and Starlink, as well as Elon Musk and SpaceX, is that I don't like one individual or one organization having so much power over a service or a good or a product that basically bridges the divide between the public and private sector. And what I'm worried here is that someone like Sam Altman now is working, or at least of now, is working with a company that is profit-driven, that has, that has a lot of influence, a lot of power, and is just looking at growth. And I don't know if a company like Microsoft, yes, it's done a lot of good things. I mean, I use Microsoft on a daily basis, but I don't know if they always have the best intentions at heart when it maybe comes into conflict with growth. And, and I guess I, one of the last things I would say here is that I like the idea of OpenAI more than I like the idea of Microsoft having this. And I do recognize that Microsoft was a major funder for OpenAI. But what I mean is that OpenAI seems like a more somewhat democratic version because what you're having is people that understand the technology but have different means and different ideas on how to use it. And they're having an open debate rolling out in the company right in front of us. And, you know, you have some of these true believers, like truly true believers, that understand the power of things like ChatGPT or what could be down the road. And maybe they can understand the power of it and the success it can bring, but they're also horrified by it. I would rather that process continue to happen with deliberation inside of an organization like OpenAI. I don't like the fact that they have kind of removed half of that equation and now they're joining Microsoft, which is much more profit driven. I just don't particularly like that. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that all of the worries I've seen expressed are correct. I think there is a lot of panic about artificial intelligence and programs like ChatGPT. But at the end of the day, I do think we need responsibility. And it seems like we are slowly going away from that, especially because now it does seem like big tech is starting to control the game. Before we're out of here, I just want to read this interesting quote from an interview that Charlie Warzel gave in the Atlantic's kind of weekly blog post. And he says here in quotes, I can't stop thinking that if OpenAI was founded in opposition to the way that traditional tech companies were trying to develop and commercialize AI, and it was a sanctuary for those who wanted to build this technology safely, then the principal decision by the board to fire Altman and the chain of events it has set in motion may drive a bunch of their talent, certainly their CEO and president, into the arms of one of the largest tech companies in the world. And I agree with that. Whether you like Altman or not, I think I like the deliberative process that was playing out in OpenAI, and I think it needed more time. We didn't, I don't think the company right now needed basically a board coup to get rid of him. And that's what it does seem like this was. So anyways, let me know your thoughts. Am I completely wrong 
again, things are changing quickly, but I, I just want to share my thoughts with this. I've been talking with some coworkers and heard it on a podcast on the drive home and figured it was worth talking about for a little bit. So interesting world as always. Again, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. We'll be back soon. And until then, have a great night.